So have you ever had a nightmare? You know, the, the one where you're being chased, you know, by a giant garden snail, you know, and you're being chased across the stage in your public speaking class, and you realize as you're running across the stage away from this giant garden snail that, that you slip on the test paper that you have that day and, and you fall. And when you slip and fall, you realize the whole class just saw you. And, and then you realize you're wearing your polka dot elephant pajamas. And then, and then in that moment, you remembered, oh, no, I'm late for class. And oh, no, I forgot to study for this test. And oh, no, my teeth just fell out on the stage when I fell. You know, that nightmare that we all have, you know, from time to time. Most of us have experienced a few nightmares here and there. It's been estimated that every night the average person has about five dream episodes, and they last for about 15 to 40 minutes each. And one sleep research scientist said that a nightmare is really just a dysfunctional dream. So if you think about your dream episodes, are you having more functional or dysfunctional dreams? And how does a, a dream even become dysfunctional? Well, for, I guess, about 75 years, a little longer, there's been a, a lot of strategic research in the area of dreams and nightmares, uh, some solutions that have been offered to try to help people, you know, manage and battle and, and deal and maybe even avoid certain nightmares. Some tips and some solutions, and, and there's some good things out there. Things like, you know, maybe exercising a little bit, you know, before you go to bed. Or, or maybe actually always going to bed at the exact same time every night. Or maybe being sure that you don't eat triple-layer ghost pepper jalapeno cheese nachos right before you go to bed. Probably not a great idea. Most of the solutions that are out there seem very, very helpful. But are there some solutions that will help you do more than just make it through the night? Is there some help for nightmares that, that actually can bring true, lasting hope to your mind and your heart and your soul? Well, that's the kind of help we're going to be seeking for the next few Sundays together. We start a new series this morning, and it's a series on, on bad dreams. And let me go ahead and say this. Now, this sermon series, these messages will not magically make your dreams come true. And they will not magically cause your nightmares to completely disappear. That, that's not what it is. But it is my deepest longing that in the next few Sundays, you will find some real help and hope for some of the longest nights of your life. Real help and real hope. But, but why a sermon series on, on bad dreams and nightmares? I mean, why not just pick up with Luke 15 like we normally do? Well, here's why. Because over the course of the last year, in, in my life, inside this church and outside of this church, I have had a huge increase in conversations with people about nightmares. People from, from all walks of life, from all kind of backgrounds, on, on all different scales spiritually. Just folks really struggling with, with recurring and ongoing nightmares. And then for what feels like the first time in my life, for about the last four or five months, my own sleep has just been invaded by nightmares. And so what I want is for us to discover or rediscover and just know that the Bible is not some old, dusty book. 
that's just read by silly religious fanatics who love a good fairy tale because they're afraid of the dark. Now, what I hope that we will discover is that in looking at God's Word that we will see that for your heart and your mind and your soul, the Bible is living and active. The Bible is more precious than diamonds. The Bible is more valuable than gold. The Bible is sweeter than the sweetest honey that you will ever have. And so for a few Sundays, we're going to invite God's Word into our nightmares. We're going to invite God's Word into our bad dreams. And what I hope you will also see is that the truths that we look at are not just for the middle of the night. Now, the truths that we're going to look at are good for the middle of the day. These are things that are good for the bad and the hard and the ugly moments of life, whether it's in the morning, in the day, or in the middle of the night. So, we turn our attention first to the wise and extremely wealthy royal leader, King Solomon. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Now, Solomon is not referring to the heart as the organ in our body that, that pumps blood. Now, what he's talking about is that place where your emotions and your desires and your intellect and your attitudes, that place where they all live. The ancient understanding of the heart was that it was the center of everything. It was the control center of your life. Everything flows through the heart. John MacArthur says this, The heart is the depository of all wisdom and the source of whatever affects speech, sight, and conduct. In other words, the the heart, it determines what you say, what you think, what you feel, and what you do. Everything comes through the heart. Oswald Chambers said this, The Bible term heart is best understood if we simply say me. It is the central citadel of a man's personality. I love that, me. Talking about the heart, you're, you're talking about me. Because your heart is who you are. Late theologian Richard Watson said this, The Hebrews regarded the heart as the source of wit, understanding, love, courage, grief, and pleasure. The heart is said to be dilated by joy, contracted by sadness, broken by sorrow, to grow fat and be hardened by prosperity. And he goes on. The heart melts under discouragement, forsakes one under terror, is desolate in affliction, and fluctuating in doubt. (laughs) That's a lot of stuff. So the the heart, this this place where your emotions and your desires and your intellect and your attitudes, where where those things live, it, it sounds like it's kind of a pretty big deal. Medically speaking, a person dies when their heart quits pumping blood and quits getting blood and quits beating and so that the blood is getting to the body. But spiritually speaking, we could say that your emotions and your desires and your intellect and your attitudes, they in a sense die when your heart is unguarded, when you are not watching over your heart. 
In the early 1600s, English physician William Harvey became the first one to describe how blood beat from the heart throughout the body. In other words, he was the first person to say, you know what, the only way we're able to physically stay alive is because of what the heart does. And it's interesting that 2,500 years before Dr. Harvey, King Solomon said the exact same thing about what it means to be spiritually alive. It all has to do with the heart. Everything flows through the heart. So what does all this heart talk have to do with a nightmare, though? Heath Lambert is the senior co-pastor of First Baptist Church in Jacksonville, his worldwide leader really in biblical counseling. And he said this, It helps to remember that our dreams, whether pleasant or nightmarish, are thoughts that we have while we are sleeping. Those thoughts come from our hearts, and our hearts can be shaped and guarded. So Snickers tells us what? You aren't you when you're hungry, right? But you are you when you're having a nightmare. A nightmare doesn't cancel you out. You are still you when you are having your nightmare because a nightmare, like everything else in your life, it's still going through your heart. Everything flows through the heart. So if that's true, that means that Solomon's words take on gigantic importance when we start talking about how we're going to battle and deal with nightmares. Listen to them again. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it, from your heart, flow the springs of life. The springs of life, the, the fullness of life. A nightmare is trying to stop up the springs of life. A nightmare is trying to disturb and disrupt the fullness of life. A nightmare is trying to disorder your life. It's the nature of what it does. The reason we guard our hearts is because everything flows through our heart. We don't just guard our hearts. We don't just watch over our hearts on the second and fourth Tuesday of every month, right? No, we watch over our hearts all the time, especially when we go to bed. Why? This is what Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Be of sober spirit is the, the same way as saying watch over your heart. It's the same idea here. But why? Why should we be of sober spirit? Why should we watch over and guard our hearts? Well, Peter says it's because the devil is always seeking someone to devour. So who's the devil? I've always appreciated Wayne Grudem's simple explanation. A personal spiritual being who is in active rebellion against God, who has leadership of many demons like himself. The devil, your adversary, your enemy, he hates your soul. The one who hates your soul hates you. The one who seeks to destroy your soul hates you. He is extremely powerful. But he is a miserable loser who has no future. And what he longs more than anything is to make you miserable and to destroy your future. His longing is that your soul would be tortured forever. It's who he is. It's what he does. And his greatest ability to win, the greatest place that he can find victory, 
is in your mind and your attitude and your heart. Charles Spurgeon said this, Satan will tempt and try us in every way, though every gate may be battered, though against every part of the walls thereof, he will be sure to bring out his great guns. And then he says this, yet the place against which he levels his deadliest malice and his most furious strength is the heart. The enemy is a wild beast. And by his very nature, he is skillful, he is strong, he is diligent, and he is cruel. We should never underestimate the enemy, and we should never overestimate the enemy either. C.S. Lewis gives some encouragement and some caution when it comes to dealing with the devil and all of his evil agents. Lewis wrote this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And then he goes on. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. In other words, hey, they're fine with us being dumb about who they are. They're good with that. Because if we're dumb about who they are, if we underestimate or overestimate, then, then we're not in the game. So the picture is here this, don't deny the works of the enemy. And don't exaggerate the works of the enemy. Don't ever chuckle and say, well, the devil made me do it. Don't ever say that. Don't ever in casual conversation say, well, let me play the devil's advocate. Don't ever be an advocate for the devil, even in casual conversation. If you need to say something, and I've always given credit to Peter Jennings for this, say, let me play ignorant advocate. But don't be an advocate for the devil. Do not ignore his hatred for you. Do not ignore his desire to devour you. But on the same token, don't glorify him. And don't just pass all your sin off on him. And also, don't just pass your nightmares off on the devil. Don't just, oh, I'm having nightmares. It's just Satan attacking me. Don't, don't just pass everything off on the enemy. Don't be quick to do that. Be quick to do this. Be quick to watch over your heart. Be quick to guard your heart. Be quick to do that in the morning when you wake up. Be quick to do that at school and at work. Be quick to do that at the doctor's office and when you're playing sports. Be quick to do that when you're surfing the internet. Be quick to do that when you're scrolling through social media. Be quick to do that when you go to bed at night. And be quick to do that even in the middle of your nightmares. Guard your heart. Watch over your heart. Do it with all diligence because everything is flowing from your heart. Everything. But why? I mean, what's the big deal? Why should we guard our hearts? I mean, come on. In this stuff about the devil, Satan, the enemy, his demons, in all this stuff about that and, and nightmares and guarding your heart, aren't these just scare tactics? Aren't these just things that, that preachers and teachers and parents, they, they just make this stuff up so they can control people and, and so they can take all the fun out of life? Isn't that what this all is? Peter Marshall was the chaplain of the United States Senate from 1947 to 1949. 
Josh Harris retells a story that Marshall used to share often, and it's a great story to help us understand the importance of watching over our hearts. The name of the story is called The Keeper of the Spring. You may have heard it before. And it goes like this. An elderly, quiet forest dweller once lived high above an Austrian village along the eastern slopes of the Alps. Many years ago, the town council had hired this old gentleman as a keeper of the spring to maintain the purity of the pools of water in the mountain crevices. The overflow from these pools ran down the mountainside and fed the lovely spring that flowed through the town. With faithful, silent regularity, the keeper of the spring patrolled the hills. He removed the leaves and the branches from the pools. He wiped away the silt that would otherwise choke and contaminate the fresh flow of water. And by and by, the village became a very popular attraction for vacationers. Graceful swans floated along the crystal clear spring. The mill wheels of various businesses located near the water turned day and night. Farmlands were naturally irrigated, and the view from the restaurants just sparkled. Years passed, and one evening the town council met for its semi-annual meeting. That's what happened at town council that night. Well, as the council members reviewed the budget, one man's eye caught the salary paid the obscure keeper of the spring. Who is this old man? He asked indignantly. Why do we keep paying him year after year? No one ever sees him. For all we know, this man does us no good. He is not necessary any longer. And by a unanimous vote, the council dispense with the old man's services. And the story continues. For several weeks, nothing changed, but by early autumn, the trees began to shed their leaves. Small branches snapped off and fell into the pools, hindering the rushing flow of the sparkling water. And then one afternoon, someone noticed a slight yellowish-brown tint to the water in the spring. And a few days later, the water had darkened even more. Within a week, a slimy film covered sections of the water along the banks, and a foul odor emanated from the spring. The mill wheels moved slowly, some finally just ground to a halt. Businesses that were located near the water closed. The swans migrated to fresher waters far away, and tourists no longer visited the town. Eventually, the clammy fingers of disease and sickness reached deeply into the village. The short-sighted town council had enjoyed the beauty of the spring, but underestimated the importance of guarding its source. And then the story turns back to us. We can make the same mistake in our lives, like the keeper of the spring who maintained the purity of the water. You and I are the keepers of our hearts. We need to consistently evaluate the purity of our hearts in prayer, asking God to reveal the little things that contaminate us. Just the little things. As God reveals our wrong attitudes, longings, and desires, we must remove them from our hearts. Just the little things. Just the one guy. The one guy and and the one thing that he did changed the whole town. That makes those words from King Solomon pretty powerful. Listen to them again. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. So we watch over our heart and we guard our heart because sin and the enemy and all of his agents are always seeking to devour us. It's their goal. It's their plan. 
And we watch over our hearts and we guard over our hearts so that sickness and disease and stress and worry and fear and anger and apathy and and arrogance and anything else will not prevent us, contaminate us so that we don't see and enjoy and embrace beauty. That's what happens to the heart. We, We lose the concept of beauty if we do not watch over our hearts, especially the beauty of the grace and the mercy and the steadfast love of God. But how do we do that? I mean, how do we... How do we guard our hearts? Well, we guard our hearts with what is true. All right? So what's true? I was listening to a sermon either last week or the week before last, and and the preacher said that someone had recently asked him this question, why do you believe that the Bible is true? And this is what he said. He said, because my mama told me it was true. (laughs) That is a great answer. I am so thankful that Patricia Andrews Welsh has been telling me for 45 years that the Bible is true. And she'll be watching this in a couple hours when she gets home for church, so thank you, Mama. The Bible is true. The Bible is true. How do I know that? Summer after my freshman year in college, when, when I'm reading the Bible, all of a sudden I'm not having a quiet time anymore. Now, the, the Bible was, was coming alive to me. It was no longer just this book that my mama said was true. No, God himself, through his spirit, he started highlighting nouns and verbs and adverbs and and adjectives, and and this book was coming alive. It wasn't just something I was reading. It was something that was reading me and, and taking over my mind and my heart. And the more I read page after page, there was this one thing that I discovered over and over again about all the people that I read about in the Bible. And this was that one thing. They weren't crazy They weren't crazy. It wasn't a book of a bunch of of fairy tale stories from religious fanatics. It was historical accounts from faithful followers. Just ordinary people who met an extraordinary God. And they met that God and they said, yes, yes, I, he's real. He's real, I'm compelled. I'm convinced. I know who it is that I'm believing in. And that was just the Old Testament. Then you get over in the New Testament, and they're saying the exact same things. But then they also say things like this. Death is dead, and love has won, and Christ has conquered, and Jesus is risen. Are there also a lot of historical and theoretical and philosophical and and theological evidences for the truth of the Bible? Yes, there are. But you know what? The Spirit of God and the testimony of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Jesus and Paul and Peter and Augustine and Martin Luther and Billy Graham and my mama, you know what? They were enough. They were enough to compel me to say, this is not just a book. This is the Word of God, and and it's true. 
But you know what? Maybe you don't know my mama. (laughs) And maybe you don't believe me. Fine. Then believe Jesus. Then believe Paul. Then then take the Bible yourself and, and read through it and pray that God would cause it to come alive in your life. Because that's who he is, and this is his book. The Bible's true, and it is the clearest and most profound way for you to watch over your heart. It's the clearest and most profound way for, for you to guard your heart. Why? Because the Bible is the only book that is truly living and active. The only one. The Bible is not some magical book with disappearing ink and fantastic beasts that come out of the pages and battle the dragon in the middle of your nightmare. Nope. The Bible is a majestic book. It's a book that has promises that never disappear. It has powerful present and future realities that will fight your unbelief so that you will see and know that God is with you and that God is for you before, during, and after all the nightmares of your life. That's what his book does. So, here's just one way, okay? There's more than 30,000 verses in the Bible. I'm just going to pick half of one verse and just use that one thing now to, to try to help you see how when the fear and the fight of nightmares come upon your life, you have a weapon. Here's that weapon. Apostle Paul, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Don't miss that verb there, loved. It's past tense. Paul is saying, Jesus loved me when I hated him. Jesus loved me when I was persecuting people who followed after me. Jesus loved me when I hated him and he gave himself up for me. But the love of Jesus is not just in the past tense, is it? It's past, it's present, and it's future. He loved, he loves, and he will love forever and ever and ever. Listen, there is no greater sentence that can get in your mind before you go to bed at night and before you wake up in the morning than this sentence. Jesus loves you and gave himself up for you. Jesus loves you and gave himself up for you. Those are fantastic words in the morning. Those are fantastic words at night. But what about the middle of the night? How do those words help in the middle of the nightmare? Here's how. Because they're still true. I was reading an article for parents about understanding the difference between nightmares and night terrors for small children. It's really interesting. And the article said a a night terror is something that kind of happens in the early sleep cycle of a child. So, I don't know, maybe, you know, nine at night to maybe, you know, one o'clock in the morning. And a night terror is when it's just scary, it's loud, they're screaming, and your child can't communicate to you. 
They, they, they can't say anything. They, they can't find a way to tell you what's going on so that you can help them. A nightmare, on the other hand, they said is something that happens later in the sleep cycle. It's still loud. It's still scary. But your child can communicate. They, they can kind of say something to you like, Daddy, I had a bad dream that the world ran out of bacon. That is a nightmare of the worst kind, right? But bad dreams and nightmares and night terrors, they all have one thing in common. And this is what they have in common. They cannot touch, change, cancel out, deny that Jesus loves you and gave himself up for you. They can't. They have no power. They have no control over that fact. It's a fact that was created before the foundations of the world. It was a fact that was prophesied for hundreds and hundreds of years. It was a fact that came to be in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And because he is risen, it is a fact that cannot be wiped away. So watch your heart with that. Guard your heart with that. Jesus loves you and gave himself up for you. Nothing can cancel that out. Nothing. About six months ago, Eric Raymond wrote an article to try to encourage pastors who were hurting and struggling. And I feel like what he wrote, I just think, makes a great segue right into what we're saying about our nightmares. He says that we need to, to bend our necks back to look at the cross. And then he says this. What do you see? You see Christ. You see him there upon the tree bearing your shame. And during the consequence of your imperfections, wearing your guilt and suffering your hell. That's what the cross says to us. He goes on. But there's more. At the cross, Jesus is also demonstrating unflinching and unfailing love for you. This is love that never fails and never ends. He loves you completely. And then he asks this question. Do you suffer from the weight of complicated relationships? <laughs> no, none of us ever suffer from that, right? Do you suffer from the weight of, of complicated relationships? And I'm just adding for the sake of, of our topic here, do you suffer from the weight of recurring nightmares? If so, this is what he says, then you need to see, you, you need to see this. You need to see that Jesus loved you and gave himself up for you. If he loves you, it doesn't ultimately matter who doesn't. And if he doesn't love you, then it doesn't matter who does. The love of Jesus is the defining love of the universe. So if you have the love of Jesus, rest in that love. Rest in it. He goes on. Now pair these two together. You are intimately known. Your sin is bare. You can't hide. And at the same time, you are infinitely loved. Your sin is paid for. He loved you, gave himself for you. Oh, look back at Calvary and strain your neck to see this truth. 
in the middle of your nightmare, you're straining your neck. <laughs> you are. We, we, we're straining in a lot of different ways. But the beauty is that in the morning and before we go to sleep, we would keep telling ourselves, I'm going to strain my neck first to look at the cross. I'm going to strain my neck first to see that Jesus loved me, that he gave himself up for me, and that that love is the definition of life. So strain your neck. Watch over your heart. Guard over your heart. Rest in that love. Because listen, the love of Jesus, it is unflinching and it is unfailing. And if you haven't learned this yet, the love of your spouse is not. And the love of your kids is not. And the love of your parents is not. And the love of your pastor is not. And the love of your politicians is not. You will not find unfailing, unflinching love in this world ever. But the love of Jesus is unflinching, unfailing, and it never fails, and it never ends. It is true. So tonight and the next night and all the other nights of your life, let us rest in his love because the love of Jesus and only the love of Jesus is first and most and ultimately true. It's true. Let us watch over our hearts with his love.